Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and wel welcome to the Cato Institute and to today's conference, Cryptocurrency, the Policy Challenges of a Decentralized Revolution. I'm George Selgin, director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Our center is founded on the belief that in their various attempts to achieve financial stability, policymakers have mostly been barking up the wrong tree. That's the let's see if even more government interference will help tree. This is the Cato Institute, after all. And Cato, in case you haven't heard, is a think tank dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited, limited government, free markets, and peace. The center's mission naturally includes exploring alternatives to today's failing monetary and financial regulatory regimes. One such alternative, and an increasingly important one, is cryptocurrency. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are revolutionizing the way we think about and conduct payments, the technological boundaries of financial privacy and security, and the means for verifying ownership of both financial and real assets. Like most revolutionary developments, this one isn't without its accompanying risks. Those risks raise important questions for policymakers. Can blockchain technologies provide financial security that's truly independent of government? Will that technology or these technologies themselves provide blockchain users with adequate protection from loss? Might blockchain technology prove a boon to criminals? Might it displace official currencies, making central banks obsolete? Or might it instead become a new means for reforming official currencies themselves? Today we've got a great program for you exploring these and related issues with the help of an outstanding group of policymakers, regulators, executives, academics, computer geeks, and of course, think tank employees. Speaking of which, we at Cato and the CMFA are immensely grateful to the COIN Center and to its executive director, Jerry Brito, for their help in giving shape to today's program and in bringing together such a terrific group of speakers. Now, before I introduce Jerry, I'd like to invite those of you who are tweeters to join the conversation today by using hashtag CryptoCato. That's hashtag CryptoCato. Besides being the executive director of the COIN Center, Jerry Brito is an adjunct professor of law at George Mason University and the author of Bitcoin, a primer for policy makers. Now, when I first came to start the CMFA here at Cato, one of the things I had on my mind was hiring a cryptocurrency expert for our group, and Jerry was the fellow that I was ready to pounce on. Only when I got here, I found out he started his own uh, think tank that was just about cryptocurrency. Well, I must say, knowing how important this development has become, I think that a proper appreciation of the division of labor and specialization requires me to admit that it needs a think tank all its own. Anyway, Jerry is going to fill us in on cryptocurrency and public policy, where things stand. Join me in welcoming him to Cato.
Hello, everyone. Uh, as George says, my name is Jerry Brito, and I'm the executive director of Coin Center. And for those of you who uh, don't know, Coin Center is an independent nonprofit uh, research and advocacy group that's focused on the public policy issues affecting cryptocurrencies uh, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, we're based here in Washington, D.C., and we spend our time doing uh, three things. Uh, the first is educating policymakers and the media about this technology through plain language backgrounders, primers like the one many of you uh, will receive today, uh, individual meetings and consultations with policymakers, and big events like this one. The second is developing public policy research that helps fill the gaps where technology has outpaced the law. And lastly, we advocate for public policy choices that keep cryptocurrency networks free and open uh, for innovators. And let me say that uh, right off the bat that it's been a terrific pleasure uh, working with George, Lydia, and the folks here at Cato to put on this conference. And I'm very glad that you're all here to learn about cryptocurrencies and their public policy implications. Now, the first thing that Lydia asked me uh, to do in this talk is to explain what is cryptocurrency uh, for those of you who may be new to these ideas. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out is that digital currencies are nothing new. Uh, they have existed for decades, from Microsoft Points to Facebook Credits to Airline Miles, World of Warcraft Gold. Uh, these are not new, and neither are online payment systems new, right? So PayPal, Visa, Western Union Pay, these are all examples. So what is it about Bitcoin and similar cryptography-based currencies that make them unique? Well, Bitcoin is the world's first completely decentralized digital currency. And it's the decentralized part that makes it unique. Decentralized means that there is no issuer and no central authority. There is no company, no building, no server. Before the invention of Bitcoin, for two parties to transact online, to transact electronically, always required a trusted third party, someone like PayPal or Bank of America. And so why was that? Well, what would an online transaction have looked like without a trusted intermediary? Well, let's think first about a cash transaction where no third party is needed. If I hand you a $100 bill, uh, you now have it, and I don't. And we can verify this by uh, looking at our hands. Right? You have it, I don't, and we can verify a transaction has taken place. If we tried to do that online, what would that have looked like? Well, we'd have to represent the $100 bill in some kind of digital format, uh, we'd have to have a digital $100 file. And I would attach this $100 to a file, or sorry, attach this $100 file to a message, uh, much like I might attach a photo or Word document to an email, and I would send it to you. And you would then have the $100 file, but what about me? When I email you a Word document or photo, is the document deleted from my computer? No, I retain a perfect digital copy. And I could send it to a second person or a third person. So with a $100 file, it would be the same thing. I would retain a perfect digital copy, and I could send it, you know, or spend it a second time, a third time. And this is what computer scientists called, quite creatively, the double spending problem. And we solved that problem by employing trusted third parties, like PayPal. When I send you $100 using PayPal, I don't communicate directly with you. I instead ask PayPal to deduct that amount from my balance and add it to yours. This means, however, that we must each have an account with the same third party that we trust. 
Bitcoin's invention is revolutionary because for the first time, the double spending problem is solved without the need for a third party. Bitcoin does this by distributing the ledger, the necessary ledger of balances of accounts and balances among all the users of the system via a peer-to-peer -peer network. Every transaction that occurs in the Bitcoin network is registered in a distributed public ledger, which is called the blockchain. The global peer-to-peer -peer network composed of thousands of users takes the place of an intermediary, and now you and I can transact online without a third party between us. And these systems that rely on cryptography, a consensus protocol, and decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networks to eliminate intermediaries are called cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin being the first one. Now, here's the neat part. Bitcoin, at root, is a system for securely and verifiably transferring Bitcoins. And you know that sounds redundant. But what I mean is this, is that uppercase B Bitcoin, the protocol, the network, is a system for securely and verifiably transferring lowercase b bitcoins, the tokens. And to date, these tokens have represented money. It's the most obvious application, right? If I want to send you $100 bills, we can all agree there's a market price for a token, a bitcoin token, and we, I can send you the appropriate amount. But there's no reason why these tokens couldn't represent something else, anything we wanted. It can represent a share of stock, a particular house or a car, or a copyright to a song, a vote in an election, or anything else we wanted them to. And when you conceive of it that way, you begin to see endless possibilities for ledgers, for ledgers to register and transfer all kinds of assets without the need for middlemen. And maybe even more importantly, programmatically. It's an innovation that feels as exciting as the internet did to me in 1994. Now, my other task here today is uh, to bring you up to date on where we are in the public policy conversation related to cryptocurrencies. The first thing I'll say is that despite frequent statements in the press, to the contrary, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are not unregulated. For one thing, at their core, cryptocurrencies are actually an attempt at regulation through cryptography rather than human institutions. They allow for the verifiable transfer of assets and execution of contracts without relying on third parties. More to the point though, when one hears that Bitcoin is unregulated, the implication is that governments have not yet acted to regulate digital currency in some specific way. And that this thus makes them unregulated. And this is wrong on two counts. The first is that just because government may not have acted affirmatively to regulate specific technology doesn't mean that existing technology neutral regulations can still apply. They do. The second is that governments have created new laws and regulations specifically aimed at cryptocurrencies, or they have issued guidance explaining uh, how existing laws apply. So in fact, it's much more accurate to say that because it implies money and finance, cryptocurrency is one of the most regulated technologies around. I would say that the three main areas of regulatory activity related to cryptocurrencies are financial surveillance, consumer protection, and financial regulation. Now, when I say financial surveillance, I mean the rules and regulations in the Bank Secrecy Act and the Patriot Act that require financial intermediaries to identify their consumers, keep records of their transactions, and report many of these transactions to the federal government's financial intelligence unit, known as FinCEN, at the Treasury Department. 
FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, was the first federal agency to issue guidance in March 2013, clarifying how its existing rules may apply to cryptocurrencies. To make a long story short, FinCEN found that exchangers of digital currencies were required to register uh, with FinCEN and comply with its rules. Essentially, it sought to gather information about cryptocurrency users at the on and off ramps to traditional, uh, the tr traditional financial system. Within a cryptocurrency network, law enforcement has relied on the open and transparent nature of blockchains to trace transactions. This ability, however, will likely be challenged as cryptocurrency technology evolves to include more and more user privacy features. And this challenge, I believe, will present a good opportunity to have a conversation about the balance that policymakers have struck between user and commercial privacy on the one hand and the government's ability to collect intelligence on the other. After the collapse of the Mt. Gox exchange in 2014, the next wave of regulation in the cryptocurrency space was related to consumer protection. Exchanges and other non-bank businesses that hold cryptocurrency balances on behalf of consumers are typically regulated as money transmitters, which are licensed at the state level. This raises a daunting prospect for cryptocurrency startups having to get 50 licenses before legally operating. Not only is this time consuming and costly, but the states have not all explained if and how cryptocurrency businesses need to comply. New York was the first state to engage in a regulatory process to create a new type of license specific to digital currencies. It's called the Bit License, and they did this in 2014. Today, there are about a half dozen states looking to either create new law or amend their existing laws to cover digital currencies. And Coin Center has worked with several legislatures as well as the Uniform Law Commission to develop reasonable approaches. There are many tricky questions related to consumer protection, but chief among these is whether a digital currency business should have to seek a license if it never takes control over consumer funds, thus posing little or no risk of losing those funds. After all, according to the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, the purpose of digital currency regulation should be to make sure that businesses who are in a position of trust, because they are taking control of consumer funds, are solvent and run by responsible people. Cryptocurrencies allow us, for the first time, to offer, a user, to offer users a bank-like financial services without requiring that the user give up control of her funds. A technological breakthrough that should be promoted uh, to protect consumers and hopefully uh, exempted from licensing. Finally, financial regulators such as the SEC and the CFTC have more recently spoken out about cryptocurrency and distributed ledger technology. Starting under the leadership of then-Commissioner Mark Weijin in 2014, and more recently with Commissioner Giancarlo, who we'll hear later from today, the CFTC has taken a very forward-looking approach to cryptocurrencies, classifying them as commodities and approving derivative instruments for Bitcoin and markets for their trading. Big banks in Wall Street have also become enamored with cryptocurrencies and the blockchain technology at their core, especially features like quick and verifiable transactions and immutable shared records. They've begun to apply these ideas to interbank settlement and a trading of different kinds of financial instruments. The questions now are whether there are any regulatory obstacles to their deployment and whether there should be any distinction between the use of open permissionless networks like Bitcoin and the centralized networks of enumerated users that some financial institutions are building today. 
We have excellent panels on each of these areas today, plus a terrific panel looking at monetary implications of cryptocurrency as well. And I'm really looking forward to them. You know, to date, the U.S. has been a leader in public policy affecting cryptocurrency, holding the first legislative hearings in the world on Bitcoin in 2013, in which I was privileged to be uh, participate. Uh, Vincent's 2013 guidance was the first pronouncement by any government on a technology. In 2014, the IRS was the first tax agency in the world to clarify the tax treatment of cryptocurrencies. And the 2015 bit license was the first licensing regime directed at digital currencies. Although certainly imperfect, each of these pronouncements brought clarity and certainty to an emerging industry. And these approaches were copied around the world. But this global leadership, <coughs> this, this global leadership is not guaranteed. Other countries are beginning to stand up regulatory regimes that don't merely tolerate cryptocurrency firms, but welcome them with open arms. The UK, for example, has created a regulatory framework that bends over backwards to make it easy and quick for innovative startups and entrepreneurs to comply with the appropriate consumer protection regulations and safely enter the market. Among other things, participants in the UK's uh, Financial Conduct Authority's Project Innovate, uh, these firms receive a dedicated team and contact for innovator businesses, help for these businesses to understand the regulatory framework and how it applies to them, assistance in preparing and submitting an application for authorization, and a dedicated, a dedicated contact for up to a year after an innovator business is authorized. And once you're licensed in the UK, you can easily enter the markets of other EU states. Uh, and as a recent tie-up between uh, the now-licensed Circle Internet Financial and Barclays shows, you can also develop good banking partnerships. That's pretty impressive from a, federal from a, from a government agency. And it's not an accident. As the UK's chancellor, George Osborne, uh, has said, the plan is to make London, quote, the global center for fintech. And he has acknowledged that globally, quote, their race is on, but we're determined to win it. So if encouraging fintech and digital currency innovation is a race, how is the US doing? Well, since New York issued its bit license regulations in June 2015, only one license has been issued, and at least 27 companies are still waiting in line. Meanwhile, as I've said, other states are pursuing disparate and inconsistent regulatory approaches, and some efforts to provide clarity, such as California's, have stalled. The Uniform Law Commission is admirably, admirably developing a uniform uh, model state law, but its efforts likely won't come to fruition for years. And even once you get a, bit once you get a license in one state, it means you still have 49 others to go. At the federal level, we only see the most tentative steps towards pro-innovation agenda. So what's to be done in the US is to retain a competitive edge. There are no easy answers, but there are a few low-hanging fruit that might be worth picking. The first would be serious action by federal banking regulators to make it clear to banks that it's perfectly fine and even encouraged to establish relationships with innovative fintech and digital currency firms, something that's difficult today. And second, while I'm loath to suggest new federal regulation, it may be time for Congress to begin to consider federal preemption of parochial state licensing laws that make no sense in a globally connected internet age. Politically, these options are uphill battles, but if we don't think big, somebody else will. So with that, I'm going to thank you, and I have a few minutes for questions, if any of you have questions about the technology. Thanks. So any questions about the tech or the policy?
Do one right there. Sure. So the, the question is about the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which um, last week, week before, it was last week, issued a white paper on uh, responsible innovation. That's um, what they called it. And this was sort of their big foray into uh, looking at their innovation agenda. Um, I think it's a very commendable first step. And uh, in that um, paper, one thing that they did was that they recognized that as an institution, they probably need to change their culture um, because they uh, are not too keen on inno new innovative ideas. Um, and they are even thinking of creating a new innovation office within the OCC. So that's a very commendable first step, but it's that. It's a first step. And this now begins a process of consultation with the public and with industry. And this could take years. And again, I, I, I you know, would compare that to what's happening in other countries like the UK. So while I, I welcome it, um, it would have been interesting to see um, in this white paper if they had uh, addressed uh, the issues of de-risking that uh, uh, prevent banks or that uh, you know, make banks feel like they can't um, establish relationships with, with firms. So we, we're a long, we have a long way to go. So I've seen uh, somewhat conflicting or at least varying statements about the uh, anonymity of this technology. And I'm wondering if you could comment on, on to what degree do you find this technology to be anonymous, uh, you know, from the technical standpoint. And the other, other thing is I'm curious whether you think the current um, brewing debate on cryptography will leak over into this area. Okay. So we're going to have a panel that addresses all of those questions of privacy and, more importantly, the, the debates as far as anonymity and free speech. Um, but I'll answer your question um, directly. Um, so let's take Bitcoin, first of all. So Bitcoin, it's not correct to say that Bitcoin is anonymous. It's uh, 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 more correct to say that it is pseudonymous. And here's what I mean. Um, so what is a completely anonymous transaction? A cash transaction is a completely anonymous transaction. So if you and I meet at the flea market, and you're selling me a bicycle for $100. You give me the bike. I give you $100. We part our separate ways. That's an anonymous transaction. I don't know your name. You don't know my name. There is no record kept of the transaction, the date, the, the amount, the time. No record kept of it. That's a completely anonymous transaction. On the other end of the spectrum, you have something like a credit card transaction. That's a completely identified transaction. So if I give you a credit card and I buy a bike from you, um, the, my, my card issuer knows my name, your bank knows your name, and there's a perfect record kept of the transaction, date, time, amount, sometimes even purpose. Um, Bitcoin is somewhere in the middle. Because for every Bitcoin transaction, this is part of what makes it uh, uh, so unique, is there is a perfect record kept of every transaction, date, time, amount. And this is an immutable, this goes into an immutable ledger called the blockchain. Um, but the transaction is listed as being from this pseudonymous address, which are basically a random letter, random series of letters and numbers, to this pseudonymous address. So our identities are not necessarily tied to those uh, uh, accounts, let's call them, those addresses. Um, so it's pseudonymous. We, there is a record, and we, do, we, we can't see when a transaction happened, but we don't know the identity of the person. So this is why um, FinCEN, for example, requires exchangers to know their customers and keep records of, of of uh, exchanges. Because if the FBI was investigating a stolen bicycle being sold, they would know 
the transaction, let's say, and they could go subpoena the exchange for the identity of the person. So, um, and, and we've seen this uh, being used in criminal cases, where you know, most recently in, in the Silk Road uh, trial, um, what we discovered is that there were a few rogue federal agents who had been stealing bitcoins from the investigation. And what was interesting is that using this blockchain analysis, partly uh, using, using this analysis, um, you were allowed to show that these agents indeed were the ones who were taking the money by looking at the transactions in the blockchain. Um, now, that said, that's Bitcoin. And what I can tell you is that um, uh, while that has pros and cons, uh, as far as privacy is concerned, folks would like to see a much more private system for obvious reasons. And so there are uh, technologists who are working to build much more private systems than that, and we'll talk about that later today. And with that, I think time is up, and we're going to uh, move on to our next panel. Thank you.